One way of describing marketing is connecting your products to customers. It doesn't allow enough for accident or allow enough for exploration. And it's just hard to be funny. Similar to viral, people underestimate how hard it is to create something that passes virally or is funny. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing as a function has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing podcast once more with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm good, Shaheen. And you? All right. So it's April Fool's Day, and I was thinking of some witty way of starting, and I couldn't think of anything. (laughs) I I come up so dry on April Fool's Day. It's pathetic. However, of course, I do have something to say because it was an interesting way to wake up this morning. First thing that happens, I get up and I check in on Twitter, and somebody has posted this ad that says... What do you think of our new line of eco keys, eco-friendly wooden keys made from recycled wood and tissue? And there's a few people I'm connected with on Twitter that have like, like, what's this about? Somebody says, pay attention to the date. Now, the funny thing was, I'm a marketer. I know that April 1st is coming. I was thinking about our recording today. I know it's coming. But this morning, I looked at the ad and I went, are they serious? <laughs> you know what? We're not all thinking, oh, it must be April Fool's Day. Now, sure enough, this is from a small retailer who has a set of shops in the UK called Timpson. And eventually I cracked the code and go, that was a little subtle. You know, yeah, I'm not giving them any value for having <laughs> done that. On the other hand, my uh, good friend at Klein Tools, Greg Police, he posted and they had a, a whole April Fool's landing page that they defined for their innovation labs. And it was filled with such things as a helmet that if you wear this helmet, you don't have to get any training to be an electrician. Yeah, uh-huh. I really want to handle live electricity without any training. And my favorite thing is that they were talking about a follow me toolkit so that as you walk around the job site, it follows you, you know, like a puppy. All I can think is that's very funny. No, I don't want it. And for them, I think it kind of worked. But I don't know. What do you think about April Fool's Day in marketing? Well, I thought of my witty thing now. And that's the annual thing that I post, which is on the internet, every day is April Fool's Day. <laughs> and, and I think that's a piece of the puzzle here mm-hmm. is that it is a special day. And yep. I can get it that as a marketing person or team you want to align with special days right and obviously holidays and special occasions are very much in that category Mm -hmm. but this one is a little bit different because the whole purpose of it is to have some kind of a disinformation that is funny so the two parts of that are a challenge one is that disinformation has been weaponized recently so Mm -hmm. it's not funny Mm -hmm. and then second it's just hard to be funny Not everybody gets to be funny. I think people really underestimate it. It's similar to viral. There's people underestimate how hard it is to create something that passes virally or is funny. That stuff doesn't happen just, I mean, I know people who specialize in television working around those things. It's a specialty. You don't just crack some sort of joke and gee, it works. I mean, or you can, and one out of 10 million, they're going to work. And if you're the one, then you'll think it was what you did that worked, even though it was accident. So truth is, brands need to start respecting that it's pretty hard to do a really good, funny misinformation thing that is funny enough that people get it and like it and it creates some value for you and you know all those details. But I think it's a little bit harder because when you're a company, 
everything you put out is treated with a certain degree of skepticism by everybody because we're trained consumers. We know that companies exaggerate the companies. And I mean, there is a way to look at this and say that it is the internet, but I'd also say that you're a marketer. You have to be really careful that you aren't exaggerating so much every day that your April Fools just reinforce, don't trust these people. And then the other thing is, who are you doing it for? Mm -hmm. And if you are doing it for your customers, then how deep an understanding do you have about your customers such that it's going to resonate with them? What is their appetite for something like this? In some markets, customers aren't in the mood Mm -hmm. to joke around. It's all serious stuff. And maybe that's why some companies don't and some companies do. So it's really interesting. But I think that's a really good segue into what does this communication mean in terms of the signals that you're sending to your community? Yeah whether it's customers or employees or potential recruits or investors, and to what extent do you really understand their behavior? I think that we kind of underplay how important some of the symbolic things are. So signaling is kind of a symbolic thing where you do Mm. one thing and it has an outsized impact because it symbolizes something. So for that, I end up going back to Rory Sutherland's book, Alchemy, because he has a really interesting viewpoint out of direct response marketing for how a lot of different things work. And in Alchemy, he's writing about all these oddities. For example, the one I do like to repeat fairly often is the opposite of a good idea may also be a good idea. You know, we tend to think that there's always one answer. There's never one answer. With my one of my classes this week, they were talking to him about their term paper they have to do. And I said, well, here's the scoop. There's 100 answers. 10 of them are good. I want you to find six of those 10. That's mm. your job. But there's no best. I just want you to find six of the 10 workable answers. And there's 100 answers out there. So Rory talks about signaling a lot. And his example are the handsome cabs in London, the black cabs in London, and that in order to become a approved driver, there's a tremendous amount of study required. Oh, it's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, in this day of GPS and the like, maybe that's not needed. Unfortunately. But his point is that, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, his point is that it's a signal that if you're going to take one of those cabs, you're getting a quality, you're getting reliability you're getting a trust that you can put in it. And it kind of signals a premium or signals something about that product. I talk about this with students and we often talk about Apple. When Apple started using those gorgeous boxes, you know, when you got your first iPhone or iPad in one of those really well-built boxes, it was such a stunner because nobody else was doing it at the time. And I would get this feeling of, I mean, that's Apple doing something they didn't have to do. I'd already bought Mm. the product. But they're signaling this product's really good. Those have a lot of impact for you, you know, not to do them silly and not to do them willy nilly. I could go into some kind of poetry, but anyway, um, <laughs> but to do them wisely is actually really good. I think, you know, another Apple example is the store always had that plastic bag with the two that you could use as a right. backpack. That's more than your average plastic bag. Right. And those little things, yes, people who want, Pure efficiency could argue that, well, they could just sell their product to us cheaper. And I'd say, what, 50 cents cheaper on a three on a thousand dollar product means what to you? You know, not much. It also indicates the challenge of understanding the buying 
psychology mm -hmm. and the buying behavior mm -hmm. and the signals that your product needs to send that is consistent with the positioning of the product and matching the buying behavior. One of the rules that we've developed that I'm sure many others have too, is that you have features, benefits, and pain points, and then you have buying behavior. And you want to get all those four right. Understanding the psychology of buying is a really big piece of it. And signals also speak to that and the stories about the cabin, an example of that. Yeah, absolutely. And another one he discusses in his book, and if you haven't read Alchemy, I really recommend it. It's a good read. It's a fast read. But he talks about how, at least 20 years ago, studies showed that men didn't buy cocktails, fancy sounding cocktails, and that a big part of it was they didn't want to get a drink with an umbrella in it. You know, when you're out with the guys, <laughs> right? When you're out with the guys and you're all talking football and patting each other on the back and the, uh, the bartender shows up with a drink with an umbrella in it, you're in trouble, you know? Mm. So the, that's the psychology of it for sure. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And you had the other story about the potatoes. This one is one of my favorite because it just goes to how people work and people don't work the way companies want them to work. You know, companies want to say like, you're my customer, be logical. Yeah. Well, I ain't happening. And it's not that they're completely random. It's just, we have to understand people and humanity. So the king of Prussia, Frederick, has a problem. The actual king of Prussia. This is the actual king of Prussia. Yes. Has a problem that he's looking at the population and feels like they're at risk of famine and needs to have another nutrition source. And so he decides that the potato would be really effective. It'll grow. They can propagate the crop. It's really, it's a great idea. And nobody would eat them. Apparently, the potato is not in the Bible, so they were rejecting it for that reason. And then there were things like, well, you know, dogs don't eat potatoes, so why would humans? You know, it's probably poisonous. <laughs> and there was all this kind of stuff going. So he was trying to push it out in the market in a sense, right? Push potatoes out. Get people to do it. He passed laws about potatoes and all these things. Eventually, he had to reverse course. Mm -hmm. And he actually made the potato a royally protected vegetable or something like that, you know. Only for the royalty. And he made it royally protected and established a royal potato patch <laughs> around the palace. And he had guards stand guard over it. And there's penalties for anybody who would steal from that potato patch. Of course, he also instructed the guards to not look too closely. And so people started stealing the potatoes because now the potato's hard to get. And now there's a whole different thing about the potato. It's royal and it's hard to get and all this. And once they've stolen a potato, they can grow their own because that's the way potatoes work. And the potato took over. <laughs> well, but you know, this like, okay, sort out how people work. There's a lot of times, you know, we go like, let's give them something free. And you know what? You can give a lot of free stuff away that means nothing. And I think, let's give them something. No, 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 no. Don't give them something unless they value it. How do you make sure that people value what you have to offer? So this is a good example of positioning the product as a premium product mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. some scarcity and some nobility attached to it. It's not for you. It's a bit of a forbidden pleasure because mm -hmm. it's only a royal thing. Yep. And then, of course, as soon as you do it, you say, well, I can... I can grow it myself. Why don't I do that and save myself? So thanks to the king of Prussia, Frederick, <laughs> the potato has come a long way. But a segue for us is really just the positioning and how do you find who your customer is and what they need and what is the messaging and what is the narrative and all the different ways that we have come up with to 
get our arms around this. Yeah, I was surprised when we were talking earlier that we were talking about jobs to be done. And you said in your experience, you've seen a lot of people want to use jobs to be done for positioning and for more communication-like stuff. And I have I, seen I that, yeah. surprised because I've run into it in the how do you invent products world that is where I've kind of run into it most with people saying it's the way to invent products. So yeah. I think I was I was fascinated by that. So tell me more about that. Well, to me, jobs to be done is just one of several other ways of going about it. There mm -hmm. are different ways of skinning the overall cat. And the overall cat is how can I understand what my real genuine capabilities are for whatever I'm offering? And how do I understand what are real genuine needs that a customer have and how do I match the two together? So to me, one way of describing marketing is to connecting your products to customers in an honest, real way. So how do you go about doing that? There are many ways. JTBD is one and it can work. We had Blue Ocean, Red Ocean a few years ago as a way of strategy and how do you find markets that are essentially like a new category and don't have competition and they're not tired. Right. You had design thinking. Mm -hmm. Stanford has a design school, D school rather than B school. And there's a lot of validity to that. Uh, personas, how do we define our buying personas? Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and I've seen startups go nuts trying to capture a half a dozen personas and I'm saying just too small to be able to go after really more than one or two. And then there's, of course, the whole customer journey. So jobs to be done is one way of approaching that. Anything can be done badly. Anything can be done well. My big problem with jobs to be done is that usually when I think about jobs to be done, people are already doing them. So now you have changed your marketing activity to a replacement by definition, competitive strategy against an incumbent rather than identifying an unmet need. So it's a good step to go through, but it's not the destination. And my view is that if you're not doing anything at all like that, that's a good way to start. But it's not like you're not graduating. This is positioning messaging 101. Well, and I think really within the world of innovation and new products, it's the same thing. I think that when it's talked about in innovation and in inventing products, it's always based with nobody's ever done this in the past. And of course, I get furious at that because all that's in it is stuff that's been done for over a hundred years. And it, they put it together, but it's still basically stuff we've all been doing I've been doing it since the 1980s. I did it on my first project at General Dynamics straight out of college. And it's just what you do. You got to figure out why am I making this and who am I making it for and why are they going to care about it? And you go into the market and now you got to, you know, how do I make something valuable enough that somebody will pay money for it? Pay enough money for me to be satisfied with what I got paid for. So that's the stuff's always been out there. I don't find anything terribly unique in the system, like the way stuff is pulled together. But it's not wrong. It's just not the single way. I tend to think always, like you were suggesting, there's all these models for communication positioning and things like that. Just the same as all these models for how do you try to understand people in a way to make a product for them. And maybe this circles back to Rory Sutherland, which is with Alchemy, what he points out is that a lot of things that corporations don't see as logical are things that work really well. He talks about the oddity that Coke's primary competitor at this point in time, or over the last 20 years, the one who's really taken a kind of a bite out is Red Bull. It's expensive. It comes in small bottles and it tastes bad to those of us who, at least in our generation, I think. I have students who are like, oh no, I love Red Bull. And I think it's because they've 
learn to get to it. But you look at it and it's like, that doesn't make any sense from a business school perspective. Business school wouldn't say, go make this, but it's the one thing that's happened. And I think that that's my concern with the jobs to be done world is it doesn't allow enough for accident or allow enough for exploration that maybe what is needed can't be described as a job and you can't describe the customer hiring it. Maybe it's just more people are doing this and they're going to spend some money for that and they're trying to hit at this and they'd like this. Right. I mean, reality is, and this is our advice to people and actually what we practice within Orion X is that we think that all of these models are tool sets that you can draw from and learn from. Mm -hmm. But then at the end of the day, you have to solve the exact problem you have in front of you. And what you bring is the overall knowledge and process is not a replacement for competence. Process is a replacement for very elementary process like a recipe. Mm-hmm. And can I make a really good you know, meal out of a recipe? Then I, I can, but that doesn't make me a chef. And that doesn't allow me to then go cook for 500 people. So recipes are good for small, one-off, not so bad, occasionally even very good way of doing things. But if you really want to be a chef, if you really want to cater to 500 people, you need a significantly broader perspective on this. And that's really our advice to folks. For those of us who thought about jobs to be done for the product invention cycle, I think my concern is it attempts to make innovation predictable. And that is You, not, you can't do that. Right. You can't yeah. do it. I mean, yeah. I worked with Procter & Gamble at one point in my life and they spent, well, I think, an average of $500,000 per new product on market research to try to predict and understand. And they did really good work with that $500,000. And guess what? They couldn't predict which product was going to be successful or not. They, But they made better products as a result, but they couldn't predict it. You can make that stuff a little predictable by making sure you no longer have the opportunity for big success. If you compromise <laughs> your success, right. yes. as you get more and more cautious, you'll make sure you never have a big success, but you'll make management really happy. And unfortunately, that happens a lot with products. You know, well, we got to make management happy. So instead of doing what we should, we'll do what makes management happy. I see. So is that the truism out of this discussion is that mediocrity can be made predictable, but not excellence? <laughs> Actually, that's well put. Yes. Yeah, I think that is it. I mean, mediocrity can be made predictable, but you do always have to put the second part with that, which is if all you deliver over the years is mediocrity, you ended failure. You can't thrive just by delivering mediocrity. At some point, you've got to deliver something exceptional. So on that note, happy April Fool's Day, everybody. And please rate us, subscribe, comment, keep us going. Thanks for being here. Until next time. Thank you, Doug. All right. Thank you, Shane. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.